belated new year sorry it's a bit late there's been things that we've been planning we've got other people who've got outstanding invites for episodes and we'll we'll see how we get on with those so that's the the reason for the delay but what we're doing for this episode is we're going on to a website called calm which is the christian apologetics and research ministry where they've got a list of 11 questions titled questions for atheists and the reason why i've selected this list of questions is because the first list of questions, which is a few years old, was in the form of a web form, which I filled out and I think I made reference to uh, on my blog several years ago. So I've come back to this website to have a look and I can see he's got an updated list of questions, which is why it's called Questions for Atheists Part 2. And the, the person who's created it is apologetic. He calls himself an apologetics professional, I believe. His name is Matt Slick. He's got YouTube and, and, and Facebook. And he's got uh, quite a detailed and quite a pretty looking website here so we're going to go through this list of questions that he's got here when i say we i mean uh, andrew and myself matthew and we're going to see how many of these we can hit so thank you for listening we'll work through this and see how we get on i'll say from the beginning andrew and i have not discussed this list of questions with each other so we don't know how we're going to answer today we hope you find this uh, interesting any feedback of course as normal go to reasonpress.net find our email address respond to the, the show, let us know what you think about our answers, any clarifications or, or any follow-up questions, or even to come on and to discuss with us uh, the answers to the questions. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or a believer or, or anywhere in between. We're quite happy to have that and make this as, a, as pleasant a conversation as possible. Welcome, Andrew. I haven't introduced you yet. So not the first time we've spoken this year, but the first time we're recording on mic. That's right. So again, hello to all the listeners and welcome to our first Ask an Atheist Anything of 2019. Right. So shall we just get straight into this list of questions? We won't list all the questions out because we're going to be naming the questions in front of our answers anyway. So you That's can right. wait until the right bit to hear what the question is. We'll keep you in suspense. So question one is a very simple question. What makes something moral? It's an interesting question. I guess my first thought on this is, well, where are we defining moral in this? Because I think moral on its own in this context of that question is quite a broad umbrella. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that question, Andrew? I do. So in the run-up to the show, I went off to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the SEP, because why wouldn't you? You know, if, if you're asking a philosophical question, it is, uh, it is the oracle of wisdom for philosophy. And the, the encyclopedia points out that when we talk about ethical or moral frameworks, we have two obligations. The first obligation is to create some definition about ethics. So, we, so right away, when you say, where, do, where does this come from? Well, that's a good question, right? We all have to define what we mean by ethics. Um, but more broadly, those sorts of definitions fall into two categories. A normative definition, which is to say a system of ethics by which all rational people could agree that some act or another is ethical. And descriptive frameworks, which are just codes of law from various societies. So, so right away, we get into a type discussion 
that is, uh, according to the SAP, very often unacknowledged. What, what kind of ethics or morals are we talking about when we attempt to sit down and say where they come from? Well, if we're talking about descriptive ethics, well, they come from, from the society in which we live. Now, the Christian might be tempted to say, well, our ethics, even descriptively, come from the Bible because Western ethics are, are built on the Bible. But that's certainly not true entirely for the United States, for instance, because of the Establishment Clause, right? Separation of church and state. So at least some of our ethics come from someplace other than the Bible. And then there's the, the normative, right? And where those normative definitions come from, a broad range of foundings. So secular ethics come from the idea that, that you and I are, are both humans and that as a result of being humans and as a result of the capacity to think about ethical issues, we have some capacity for agreement, whereas Christians will argue for an objective source of ethics, which is God. So hopefully that's a broad enough answer to get us started about where ethics comes from, because it's not as simple as where ethics come from. We have to define the type of ethics we're talking about. Yes, I think that's right. And I think where I'm thinking on, on this question is we need to think about the context of where this question is coming from. And it's coming from, from a theologian. I, mm. I don't know if theologian is the correct title for, for Matt. If it's not, I apologize in advance, but I'll, I'll use it. I think the question is, because it uses the word moral rather than the question is what makes something moral it's not asking for a definition of morality so i think that this question is drawing an unsaid distinction between immoral and moral so mm. let's say for example i'm walking out of a shop and i see a five pound note lying on the ground and i see 10 feet in front of me somebody walking away that five pound note may or may not be that person's five pound note i don't know if it fell out of his pocket or their pocket whoever it is be gender mm. neutral, but it but it could be. So I pick up the, that five pound note. Now it's the moral thing to do to run up to that person and say, "Is this yours?" Or is it also moral for me to say, "Well, find this keepers, put it in my pocket"? Or is that latter action immoral? So I think what this question is asking is, where do we draw the distinction between moral and immoral? Or to use easier language, what makes something a good thing to do, and what makes something not a good thing to do. And I think that's where this, this question is drawing. So if we use my example of that five pound note, so let's say it's, it's immoral for me to put it in my pocket. Well, who tells me whether it's immoral? If I'm okay with doing that, but you're not, you would call it immoral, but I wouldn't. So straight away, we've got a difference of opinion. I don't believe that there's a law in the land that makes any distinction on that. So where is it possible for us to go to uh, on that position? Or let's say I run up to that person, I tap them on the shoulder or, or whoever it is and say, is this yours? They say, oh, yeah, thank you. Put it in their pocket. Maybe it wasn't theirs. Maybe they're a really, really quick thinker and they saw that opportunity and somebody was offering them a five pound note saying, is this yours? They went, oh, yeah, of course it's mine. And it wasn't. Now, did they do a moral thing or an immoral thing? I was offering them five pounds for free. And they said, yeah, of course. So I don't think any of those actions are hard and fast, necessarily moral and immoral. And now suddenly there's millions of people listening to this podcast saying I'm a thief. So I don't think that something as simple as that is really actually categorically easy to divide between moral and immoral. Do you have a thought? 
Yes, I do have a thought here because it seems to me that those people who might be listening who have judged in their heads that you're a thief ought to ask this question in another way using this, using this exact same example. But let's suppose you find the five pound note and you don't see someone immediately around who might have dropped it. So if you do see someone immediately around, some, some might agree that you have an obligation to walk up to the person and say, hey, you know, did you drop this note, as you, as you pointed out? But then if you don't see someone around, let's say that you happen to have been out, uh, out to the pub, it's late in the evening, most people have gone home, you're walking back to your car and you come across a five pound note laying on the ground and you don't see anybody around, right? So you pick up the note and you pocket it and, and some of those same people will say, well, it, it's fine for you to pick it up and pocket it because it doesn't have an obvious owner. Well, yes, it does. It has an obvious owner. The owner is just not present. So it didn't, we don't print money out in the middle of a sidewalk and then, and then just drop it there for casual passersby. No, somebody so has lost five pounds. Right. Yes. It is still as obvious that the five pound note was lost. How does your ethical obligation to find the owner change just because the proximity of the owner is not as apparent? The obvious answer is it's not possible to identify who is the owner who lost it. Right. And so if you're on a crowded street, it, you might say, well, it's pretty obvious it, it came from that person, you know, that's standing close to it. Well, not unless you saw them drop it. If it happened to be laying on the ground and you didn't see it drop, it's just as, it's just as possible that no one has noticed it in the time that it's been on the ground. You just happen to be the person looking in the right spot. Yeah. And so the ethical person who would say that you were a thief on the one hand, uh, but that you can pocket the note if you found it laying out in the, in the street at, you know, late in the evening. That person, it seems to me, would actually be ethically obligated to take any money they ever find and just turn it into the local precinct to have someone come around and claim it if they ever do. But how so, could that happen? Uh, well, right. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how it could happen. I don't, you know, people don't go to the precinct to ask if someone's turned in a five-pound note. Now, we might say... People don't go to the precinct and ask if anyone's turned in a five-pound note because there aren't enough five-pound notes turned in by moral people for it to be a problem, right? Most of us, maybe we just put it in our pockets. Sadly, I don't run across this very often. I, I don't run across uh, $5 notes here in the U.S. often. Yeah. <laughs> do you even have $5 notes in the U.S.? I'm trying to remember from my last We period. do. Yeah, we, we do. do. Yeah. We've got uh, the common denominations are 1, 5, 10, 20, 50 and, and, and 100. I think they did away with the 500 at some point in the... I think we stop at 50 here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So it's the same. Right. Cool. And, and you know... Have we actually asked... Sorry, you're going on. Um, oh, have we no, actually asked the, the question of what makes that decision? So when I pick up that £5 note and look around and decide what to do next, what is it that makes what I do moral or not moral or good or less good and is there a black and white line there is a gradation maybe that would um, maybe that would uh, confuse things a bit too much to go in gradations of good so what is it that makes the next thing i do good or bad as as far as i'm concerned my answer is all boils it <laughs> right right so that so that is the question look first of all I can't agree that a God defines it. So let me, let me just, let me just cut yeah, we're, right we're, we're the, both there, yes. Let me just cut right to the center of, of this particular issue and say, 
I'm not particularly interested in uh, the idea that someone thinks that there's a, an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-ethical, objective God who sets down a standard because you haven't demonstrated that that God exists and something that cannot be demonstrated to exist cannot be a cause. So you got to demonstrate your God before you can demonstrate your objective moral ethics. But even if you could, even if you could demonstrate a God and, and you could in fact say, that this God had some objective moral code, and we are all prescriptively required to follow this code, you would then have to prove that it is possible for us to objectively follow the code in a manner that is objective, that is as objective as the code itself. Otherwise, we are still left with subjective decisions. Yes. So where does it come from? For me, it comes from the fact that we can broadly agree on those things that are more likely to do the greatest good among the people around us, and then we'll get into the next question, which is, uh, what if everybody doesn't agree? <laughs> yeah, but, so, yeah I, I'm slightly different from that. What makes something moral as opposed to immoral or good as, as, as opposed to bad? The observer, I think, is the, the answer I would give to that. And mm. to extend the example that I gave as, as ways and answer, me picking up that five pound note on my own, nobody else around, I decide at that moment what is good to, and, and what is bad. You might be watching me from the other end of the car park unknown, and you might decide that what I did by putting in my pocket is bad. I'm not interested. I can't see you. I've made my own decision. Now, let's rerun the, exactly the same scenario, but I'm with a group of friends. And I pick up the, the five-pound note, and there's somebody walking away. And I'm, ready to put, I'm already putting it in my pocket. And my friends all in unison say to me, Oi, Matthew, no, there's a man over there. Go give it to him. They have decided what is the good thing to do, and they've pressured me into doing that, so I go and do it. But it's them, the observers of my action, that have decided that the good thing to do is to go and give it. Or they might in unison say, well, you found it, mate. Tough luck on the loser. They have also decided that it's good for me to put it in my pocket. So my answer to the question, what makes something moral, is the observer. If it's a different observer, then it could be a different answer. Well, and I think we see that, uh, we see that played out uh, every day, right? Because it is not as if a claim of objective moral truth about the world has actually given us an objective moral truth in practice. What I'm saying is I agree that it does seem to be down to observers and groups of observers. And in that way, it is just about what we can agree to. Uh, it, is, it is not as if Christians who claim objective moral truth live even in a Christian society where some don't support pro-life and others support pro-choice. Some support the death penalty. Others do not. Some support you know, women wearing veils in church while others do not. So it is not as if we have actually implemented anything that can possibly look like objective moral truth, even in a society where some members claim such a thing exists. We uh, agree. Sorry, I'm trying to move on. Um, yes, I see. Yes, without wanting to, uh, to minimize uh, your answer, I absolutely agree. So let's move on to question two. Do you have any objective moral standard or are all your morals subjective? Now, my answer to that is quite short. My morals are all subjective. Hmm. although. <laughs> he says after a little pause, although I could be, as per my previous example, I could be persuaded to act differently 
according to those around me who are communicating with me, which is then therefore reinforces the idea that morals are subjective. So if I'm being honest, I, you know, when, when I did Unbelievable, I gave an answer to this question. And I think at that time, I absolutely agreed with you. And now I ask myself, as a result of doing some reading in the run-up to this show, whether we are right in describing ethics as subjective and objective. I am, so I still tend to say, yes, all of my ethics are subjective. They are subjective based on how I see the world. I am a subjective creature. I have only one viewpoint. I don't know everything. It is not possible for me to know everything. And so I will always and only be a subjective creature that can always and only make subjective choices. That said, when we, when we go back to a definition of ethics and we ask about prescriptive or, or uh, we ask about normative versus descriptive ethical systems, we now know from recent research that other primates other than humans have ethical behavior. Now, they don't always act with the ethics that humans act with, but other primates do have ethical behaviors within their communities. And so in some sense, it seems that Mother Nature is impressing upon us, possibly through our sympathetic nervous system, and, and, and possibly because we interact with a world that, you know, that has properties that emerge from it. But however we get there, it does seem that nature is impressing on us, not just among humans, but among all primates and some other species, a desire or some mechanism by which we can all work together, even if that is instinctual. Maybe that's not subjective. And while it's not objective in the sense that the Christian might say, it does seem to be innate among beings with higher order thought. Okay. I, I think I know what you're saying, but I th- I've got a but to what you've said. And my but on that is subjective values isn't just down to us as an individual. It's context subjective Mm. too. So the same situation in different contexts, the same individual might act differently, you know, according to their motivations. So if they're with a group of people and they want that group of people on their side, they want to foster a good relationship with those people. They might go and do something that they wouldn't normally do, but they know those people approve of it. I absolutely so would, agree. Yep. So, um, so that could potentially fit both descriptions. It's subjective in the, se- in the sense that they've changed their behavior according to the context, but it's objective in the sense that those people have consciously or unconsciously imposed their standard on that individual, and that individual has acted according to their standard. So it kind of fits into both camps, which means there's slight overlap. But I would absolutely own that as a subject, as an example of subjective morality. So I think I think we're maybe maybe we're in agreement because I think the the drive to create hierarchy, to act systematically, appears to be instinctual as the brain increases in size as opposed to body mass. Right. So our ability to think abstractly increases. As that increases, we appear to do things more and more societally. We act more and more in groups. Because you recognize the benefit of being cooperative. That's right. And so that appears to me to be something, maybe you don't call it objective, but it does appear to be instinctual. And so our system of ethics is subjective. I think it's fair to say that without some disease or some defect, so some people, some people are 
are, are asocial, right, or, or completely antisocial, and they, they won't have a drive to act instinctually. But we, we think of those people as needing some sort of psychological help. Right. Whether whether it's counseling or drugs or, you know, maybe they just don't have some brain structures that that cause them to behave in society in a, in a particularly constructive way. In general, it appears to be that as we develop the ability to think abstractly or to act abstractly, we develop the need to act in societies. Maybe that's not objective, but it is instinctual. And from that, we do get subjective ethics, because what else are we going to get? Quite. OK. Uh, does that Shall we move on? Yeah, I, I think that answers it. So let's move on to question three. Yeah? Do any actions automatically have moral value, such as rape being wrong, or is the moral value assigned by people? Again, I'm finding this question either vague or, or leading. Maybe I'm being unfair to, to Matt here for phrasing the question that, that, that he has. But anyway, I have a, I have a slight issue with the, with the way this is phrased. Anyway, let's go. I don't think an action... No, I'm not even going to go there. So you run with this, Andrew. I'll um, think about this a bit more because that was a dead end where I was going, so I won't even go there. Okay, so does an action automatically have moral implications? Well, descriptively, in a society where rape is wrong, you know, if there is a law against it, it already it has moral implications and ethical value the moment you rape someone. Now, I was on a show where I was talking to a Christian about this a while back. And this Christian who insisted that there were objective moral truths and that rape would be wrong from the perspective that God laid down an indictment against rape, couldn't say to all of the women listening and to all of the men listening, rape is wrong because you're hurting the other person, because you're violating their bodily autonomy. That person, by the way, was Justin Brierley in concert with Randall Rouser. And I was, and still am, appalled that they would say that God has created an objective truth about rape being wrong, but they couldn't just say, you know what, rape is wrong because you're hurting someone else. That seems that to is, me. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, and that is why I would say rape is wrong, because the other party in, in that interaction is not enjoying what's going on. They want it to stop. Therefore, it is wrong for you to force it on them. Right. And if I, I will just I will die on this hill. I, I am happy to, to say here, if you are the kind of person who does not have a, a sympathetic system that will lead you not to cause others pain, then I simply don't want to know you. I think that you've got a bigger issue when you cannot empathize to not harm someone than you do if you say all of my, all of my ethics come objectively. Matthew, you and I have a friend uh, over on the Unbelievable Boards who says he would kill in the name of his God. And, and that person has, you know, there's been a, there's been a, lot, of, uh, been a lot of discussion over that statement. And it seems to me to be the worst kind of epic, to be willing to say, I would kill you for my God, rather than saying, we are humans together. And I will not perpetrate an act on you, regardless of who asks, that would cause you harm. You see, in one sense, it, it's sort of the Hippocratic Oath, you know, what doctors used to take. First of all, do no harm. And that, to me, as a human working out of ethics, seems to me to be the pinnacle of what it means to be ethical. First of all, do no harm. I don't care who asked it. I think that's a, a good policy to have. I've been on a different Facebook group 
years ago where a Christian did pretty much the same thing. They were they were faced with the question of you wake up one morning and you are absolutely convinced beyond every and any reasonable doubt that your God has instructed you to kill a particular individual. Mm. They said, yes, they would do it. Actually, no, wait, I'm going to rewind now. It was on the subject of Abraham. So it was their child. Isaac, they, yeah. They still said yes. And all the people who were not Christians were, were horrified by that. And I was horrified by that. I can't go there. And I think this rewinds back to, to question to the other questions about where the values come from. I find that idea of killing your own child, regardless of what the situation is, quite reprehensible. I can't imagine any situation where I could describe the killing of your own child in any word that does not involve evil. I, I, I just can't. I just can't place my place my mind there. So I, I just can't see it. But that action, whether that action is good or bad, is still being defined by me. I might say, absolutely, hurting your child under any descriptions is wrong, but that is still me saying that. I might be absolutely firm in that position. I might be absolutely adamant, and I am, that it could never be anything other than absolutely wrong. But it is still, at the base of it, my subjective opinion. And I, have, I stand by my opinion that that is wrong. And I stand by, by my view that I hope if I was to see such an act, act going on that I would intervene, because that is how strongly I feel about it. But it is still my personal, individual, subjective opinion. I just feel very strongly about it. Well, sure. And, and I think, so two things. I think it's fair to say that wide subjective agreement works just as well as wide objective agreement. People die yes. for subjective things all the time. Absolutely. Um, some of us think space exploration is worth doing. Other, others of us don't. People die in space exploration. It's a subjective issue and people die. But those people that die are no less convinced that it's worthwhile than if God had sent them a letter in the mail saying, hey, you ought to get on that rocket that's going to blow you into space uh, so that you can die in 72 hours or, or, or whatever it is. So I don't see that objective helps. But I want to turn to your Abraham example for a second because this seems to me to be very important. God orders Abraham to, to go and sacrifice Isaac. Now, Abraham doesn't know ahead of time that, that uh, maybe God's going to work this thing out some other way. He goes and he's ready to sacrifice Isaac. He grabs Isaac and they, you know, they go for a long walk and they gather all the stuff they need. And, you know, and he's building the altar and he's ready. to. Here's, so you say, but, you know, this is the proof that Abraham really loved his God. And then God worked it out so he wouldn't have to kill Isaac. Well, here's what I'm telling you, Christian listeners. If you're willing to sacrifice your child for your God, and that is hard for you because you're close to your child and you love your child, I don't trust you with mine because you're not closer to my child than you are to your child. And the compunction, it, when you say, well, if God commanded me to kill my child, it would be hard, but I would do it. You'd suffer less ethical problems if God ordered you to kill my child. So I don't trust you. I don't trust your God. I don't trust your notions of ethics. And you need to reconsider. Yes. In fact, I would go one step further. And I would say, I would, you would impress me more if you turned around to your God and you said, no, that is not a good thing. I do not accept that that is a good thing that you're telling me to do. And I decline. Do with me what you will, but I will not kill my child for you. And well, I would have... I would say that that person 
is more holy than Abraham. And and so we and when we march on into the New Testament, we have this uh, we have this statement about what God has made. Let no man let no man tear asunder. Right? Surely, surely it would have been more ethical for Abraham, who believed in an imaginary God, to say. God, you constructed us. I have no right to take life. If you want my son, yes. it is in your power to take him, but I will not take his life by my hand. Yeah, I th- uh, yeah, that is also a fantastic response to that and a more holy response uh, in my subjective opinion. Uh, my, mine too. By the way, apologies to the listeners for getting a little uh, uh, worked <laughs> up over that one. <laughs> right. Moving on, number four, belting through these. Why ought a person not steal? So we've gone from rape down to, to stealing. Are they on different levels? I think, to me, the answers to three are pretty much the, the, the same to four. It's just if I see that question four, why ought a person not steal, is pretty much the same, same as three. There's a measurable value in the person that you're stealing from is losing something. They may not be aware of it, but they're still losing something. And that losing something is objectively calculable. And that would be my argument for that being a reason not to steal. So I agree. And having talked a lot over the last couple, I will leave that at my full-throated agreement. And we can move on to the next question. (laughs) Excellent. I like that. Because we might pause for a while on this one. Number five, bit of a biggie. I'll challenge listeners here. See if you can... What's the, the whoopsie in this question? Why was the atheist Joseph? Joseph I, I, I have to warn you, listeners, I've got a glass of beer next to me on the desk. So I'll um, start. Question five. Why was the atheist Joseph Stalin wrong for killing over 42 million people in the 1900s? If so, why? If not, why not? Where was the blooper in that, uh, Andrew? Hmm. Why was Joseph Stalin wrong the uh, atheist, atheist Joseph. Joseph that, right, right. And that's where the, sorry, I was uh, rereading the question in my head and I stumbled across it in the rereading in my head. Uh, if, if we can agree that what we want out of this world is for the most people to thrive, if we can agree on that one principle, then stemming from that principle, it's objectively wrong for anyone to kill 42 million people. But by the way, it's not as if the Western world hasn't killed. I was reading an article. I will include this in the show notes. It is estimated now that the taking of the West by the, by the Europeans contributed to the start of global warming back in the 15 and 1600s. This is, oh, this is, article, haven't we? Yes. That was oh, oh, yeah. So, so it was good, yeah. wasn't it? And what they estimated was that in the European taking of the Western world, 57 million indigenous Americans, uh, and and so by Americans, I don't just mean North Americans, by the way, because we're talking about South America all the way up through Central America into North America. 57 million lives were lost in the European taking of the Western world. Spreading the good gospel of Jesus. Right. And so you need not ever ask me again listener, if you were inclined to. Was it right for some atheist, insert atheist here, to take a bunch of lives? Because early on, four or five hundred years ago, 
we can track the loss of human lives into the millions by a society that professed Christianity. And that taking of life irrevocably altered the face of the world we live on. It is wrong to take life. And we only have to agree to one principle to get there. That one principle is that we want to live in a world where the greatest good is done for the greatest number of people. Absolutely. That is why killing that many people is wrong. It's exactly the same as the previous two questions. You are objectively doing harm to people. They're not enjoying it. It's not what they want to happen. And in the case of Joseph Stalin, he was doing it. Why? Because he wanted absolute control. People who opposed him, for whatever reason that they opposed him, they paid for that with their lives. Some of those people died knowing that their opposition would be the cause of their death. And they opposed him still because they felt it was right to oppose what he was doing. And so that was how they died. And I have to say this, I have to bring this out. Calling him an atheist in this question is poisoning the well somewhat. There are a lot of other things that, that Stalin was as well. There was a man with an impressive moustache. He was white-skinned. He enjoyed wearing a hat. He usually wore military uniform. And he was a communist, I believe, or a Marxist, or a Leninist, whichever one fits. And he was lots of other things. And he was a despot. And he was somebody who was prepared to kill in order to keep his control. All of those other descriptions are not descriptions that come under the banner of atheist. So putting atheist into this question is wrong, is immoral, is poisoning the well, is deceitful. Lots of other adjectives as well I could use in there. But it really is leading the person who's reading this question into an area that the apologist who's writing the question wants to draw them into. And it is philosophically unsound. And I want to challenge him specifically on that. So I'll say that, that is, um, that's a good point that I hadn't spotted. I knew where the flaw in the question was. But the more important point is, while, while maybe it's true that some despot holds some worldview, and it happens to be something that's fundamentally against your worldview, like, like Christianity versus atheism, we all have many, many views. And sometimes they tidy up nicely under, you know, under one camp, and sometimes they don't. But in the case of being willing to mass murder, you have to ask what properties of that person's personality more directly contribute to their willingness to kill. And it seems to me that that property, as we, as we look at human psychology, the structure of the human brain, uh, sort of what makes us tick, the property of belief or lack of belief in a god is less likely to contribute to the willingness to murder than is a deep defect in the physical structure of that person's brain. That is, they are so antisocial that they simply don't feel normally towards others. That seems to me to be the thing that's more likely to lead toward genocide than, oh, I believe in a God or I don't. Yeah. Okay, so. so sorry, you were gonna finish off on that? Oh, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the next question if you are. Yeah, good, excellent, that's, that's this. So number six, halfway through. From the perspective of an atheist, uh, is the action of rape wrong, even if it furthers the species? Now, we've mostly answered this already in question three, but it's the addendum, even if it furthers the species. So the question I would ask back on here is, is rape the only way of furthering the species? Are there alternatives to rape 
which are more productive in furthering the species? I'll give you a hint. The answer is yes. I think it's Sorry, an interesting question. voice over. No, <laughs> and, and the gloves come off. Uh, I think it's an interesting question because if you ask a thousand Christians, you're going to get a thousand answers too. Uh, right away, what Matt Slick has done here is poison the well by introducing atheism. So let me ask it from the Christian perspective. God has said, go forward, multiply, and fill the earth. Suppose we end up in a cataclysm, and there's one man and one woman left on the earth. The woman doesn't know the man. She doesn't feel particularly warmly toward him. Perhaps, perhaps he survived because he was a, a person associated with the, with the catastrophe. But God has said, go forward and fill the earth. If you're a Christian, is he right in raping the woman to continue the human race? If not, why not? If so, why? I don't think it's a particularly interesting way of phrasing the question to say under atheism. No, I think it, again, it, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just agreeing. No, it, it, it's not. It's pushing people down into a particular cone of thought. Um, and we've already explained why we think rape is wrong. So under, right. under atheism, which is a phrase I'm not particularly fond of, rape is wrong. And why is it wrong? Not because atheism says it's wrong, but because the um, effect on the on the individual who it's being done to is objectively measurable scientifically i had to throw that in right and it is harmful it, it can be measured and it is harmful uh, it can result in all sorts of unpleasant things uh, for the woman concerned and i would even challenge the thing even if it furthers a species well i'm not convinced that rape does actually further species. it might increase the chances of that individual male becoming a father because other females find him objectionable or wouldn't mate with him if they had a choice. But that female could be harmed in such a way that she is no longer able to conceive because rape can be quite violent. And yes. so her ability to uh, produce, ch to generate children into the population might actually be reduced as a result of rape. And also there's a psycholo psychological effect. She might, her, the psycho psychological effects might be traumatic. And so that she's um, disinclined to have sex. So again, yes. her ability to produce children into the population is again declined. So I would even challenge that there is any scenario where where rape can, and if rape was completely removed from the population, I would be prepared to to bet my salary that the population would increase at a higher rate than if there was a situation where rape was more commonplace. Sure. And, and I'll, I'll go a step further for the listeners who haven't spotted it and, and sort, of, sort of tangential to the, the ethical question about rape. What Matt Slick has done here is deliberately poison the well by asking emotional questions and begging those answers, right? So uh, what about stealing? What about rape? What about, well, we can play those emotional games all day long. And I proved that. I turned this table deliberately to play the emotional game. What we should be asking are these questions minus the emotional content where we can. But that's not what has happened here. Matt has phrased a bunch of emotional questions so that you build an emotional tide where it feels like they're, in, where it feels like they're unanswerable. That's, uh, those are just dirty tricks. It's, it's silly to ask the questions that way. And I'll expose that for our listeners who didn't who didn't spot it.
So question seven then, I'm assuming we're moving on. Question yes. seven, he's already thought of our answers. He's already gone through answers. Maybe he's already heard our answers already. So I suspect that none of our answers to rape have surprised him at all because question seven, in atheism, here we go again. If you say rape is wrong because it harms someone, why is harm the standard of morality? Now, I would truncate that question early. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a standard of morality. Maybe I need to rethink that a little bit more. Harming someone, regardless of the circumstances, is a problem because you're, you're, you are doing something to someone that is objectively measurable as unpleasant to that person. It could have all sorts of effects on them, physical and otherwise, like I said before, about a, a woman and her ability to bring children uh, uh, into the world. So there are effects. It doesn't have to be rape. I really don't like using using rape as, an, as a go-to example. Stealing is just as good. The answers are pretty much the same. Mm. You steal from someone, there are measurable objective effects on what's going on there. And those measurable objective effects are not wanted by the individual that they're happening to. That is the line. That person does not want you to do that. That is the line at which you stop. It doesn't matter what it is you're doing, stealing their five pounds from the, their back pocket. They don't want you to do it. Don't do it. Is it really that difficult? Well, no, it's not that difficult. And I think the reverse question should be asked. How is it possible to arrive at a framework where harm is not the standard? So put another way, if God told you that rape was right, would you object? If, if your God said, yeah, if, if your God said, go rape, if your answer would be, okay, you know, you know what, God, um, you're right. I need to take virgin girls as war prizes. Then the problem is not with the atheist who says that harm is the standard and harm is wrong. The problem is with you because you fundamentally don't have the emotional or empathetic framework. You are a sociopath. If you are willing to rape in the name of your God, you're the problem, not the answer. I'd like to turn this around slightly differently and go back to the Abraham and Isaac example. Let's rewrite the story. Isaac has the dream. And Isaac wakes up in the morning and he goes to Abraham and he says, Dad, you need to take me up to the top of this mountain. You need to put me on a, on a pile of stones on an altar and you need to kill me before the Lord. Mm. Mm. Abraham should object. Even if, so uh, I, I like this. I'm, gonna, I'm going to help paint the picture just because it's a fun picture. So, so Isaac gets the dream. Isaac wakes up and says, I am sacrificing myself to God. And God has told me that this sacrifice needs to be done through my dad's hands. Dad, come on. I'm building my altar. I'm starting the fire. I will bind myself to the altar. Uh, I'll, I'll accept the one remaining limb, which you'll have to, die, uh, to tie down. And then you have to plunge the knife into my chest. I couldn't do it's it. A, no, of course not. Of course you couldn't. Of course you couldn't. I couldn't either. And Abraham should not have been able to, even in the face of his own God. What you have made, God, I have no right to take. Absolutely. And there is a fundamental unsaid thing in this question, which you, you've already touched on, which I have an enormous problem with. If I don't like hurting people, it, I can't help it. it. It's the way I am. 
It is never anything I have ever had any pleasure in doing. I have had moments in life where I've been hurt by someone and I have, for a period of time, entertained the idea of causing them hurt back. Mm. Okay, I'll, I'll admit that, you know, in the moment of, I'll say weakness, but in the moment of pain, I have wanted revenge. Yeah, maybe most people, maybe all people have had that kind of thing. Sure. But that doesn't actually override the underlying rule that causing hurt and harm to another individual is something that I have an enormous problem with. I enjoy watching a whole variety of films. There is one type of movie sequence, movie film, movie genre that I absolutely really struggle with, and that's gore sequences. I mm. really, really struggle with them. I can watch horror, supernatural horror, I really kind of like, and I like action, I like explosions, but people being harmed, gore horror really is a problem for me. I just don't like it. I'll give you a perfect example. What was that Mel Gibson film that he made about the, the crucifixion of, of Christ? Passion that of was the Christ. Passion the Passion of the Christ. Of the Christ. I went yeah. and watched that at the cinema and I made it through the whipping sequence. It was torturous, but I made it through it. Then got to the bit of the film where the crow comes on. Have you seen the film, Andrew, by the way? It's been a long time. But you, you, you have seen it. I saw it yeah, when I was at the yeah. cinema, which was, which was a long time ago, 10 years away. The crow came and sat on his shoulder or on the top of his head, wherever it was. And I knew what was going to happen. I mm. absolutely knew. And I closed my eyes because I did not want to see however it was they were going to depict that bird pecking his eye out because I knew that was what was going to Sorry, Spoilers. I'm sorry if you've not seen it. I, I knew that was going to happen. And I said to the girl that was ne next to me, I said, what happened? And she told me, I went, yeah, I knew that's what was going to happen. And I closed my eyes. I just couldn't bear it. So that's where I am. I, 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 can't do, I, can't, I can't do harm. So why is harm the standard of my... Well, I have a fundamental problem with causing harm to people. This is me. It is in my DNA. I just can't do it. I squeamish if that's the word you want to use but that is not put on me by another being that is me in my dna i am physically incapable of going going over that line of doing that thing it's not that i am capable of crossing that line and i don't cross that line because i have in the back of my head a commandment that tells me i can't cross that line that is not what it is i physically cannot cross the line it is me as an individual in my DNA, the way I behave forbids me from going over that. I physically cannot do it. I mm. don't need to rely on any written or otherwise command that tells me not to do it. I can't do it. You know, it's interesting because as a younger person, so this is maybe, maybe a little too autobiographical for the listeners, if so, apologies. As a younger person, I enjoyed combat sports. I wrestled in high school and college. I was a martial artist. I taught martial arts. I enjoy combat sports. And there's probably still a darker side to me who would be willing to, to go out and, and do things that, that I shouldn't do. However, I don't do those things. And the reason I don't do those things is because I am aware that there are people about whom I have deep, deep caring. People for whom I would willingly sacrifice myself rather than see them harmed. And so I'm aware that 
we live in a society where if, if I visit violence on someone, and by the way, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the kind of guy who would go, you know, shoot up a bank or, or something like that. All I'm saying is I enjoyed the physical conflict and, and maybe some listeners will think that's dark, but we don't do those things in large part, not because God told us not to visit violence on people. We do them in large part because we realize that when we start down that road, it is the people that love and support us who also are harmed. And that is a good enough reason. That is a good enough reason. And if it's not good enough for you, then your God telling you not to doesn't make it any better. Amen. Sorry, wrong words. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, but it was well played, though. Uh, <laughs> we're a little over halfway through. Do you want to try to finish the questions? Or... I, I, I think we can finish these. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, when it comes to editing, I, may make it, I might make a decision to split it in two. But um, I, I think we've got enough time to hit these before the stop. So I'm good for, if you're good. I'm good. Okay. Question eight. I don't like the way question eight is phrased. It might become obvious on the hearing. Mm. Question eight. If you believe something is morally wrong, like rape, should I put a yawn in there? Yawns. In inverted commas, ought you do something about it and impose your value on others. What's wrong with this question, Andrew? <laughs> um, that some people are convinced that it's a good question. Oh, no, it's, it's <laughs> are we taking this seriously, seriously enough? I need more. Um, yeah, yeah I, look, I'm I'm about to to break out the uh, I'm about to break out the the vodka myself. Um, so there are a lot of problems here. There are a lot of problems here. Okay, um, then let me, before you answer that, let me ask mm, you a follow-up question then. Mm, Can we just change this from rape? I've already said, I don't like the rape example. Theft works just as well. Sure. You witness somebody stealing five pounds, five dollars, whatever currency you like from the back pocket of somebody else. Why would you stepping in on that be imposing your, value, your morality on somebody else? Well, okay, again, this question does something that I don't like. Let me go back to the beginning of this of this show where I talked about descriptive ethics versus normative ethics. And if you live in a society where theft is wrong, and I'm I don't know that I know of one where theft is acceptable. And those by and large are you know they're they're across the board, Buddhist societies, Muslim societies, Christian societies. In some countries they're largely not religious. So you know if we think about the Dutch or whatever Theft is wrong, and it's wrong in the vast majority of descriptive systems. So right away, Matt is, is guilty of being way too vague. And I am right in any descriptive society I live in, in stepping in, if that descriptive system says that theft is wrong. So I don't even have to ask the normative question, because I live in a society that has collectively said, for whatever reason, that theft is wrong. Now, Someone's going to accuse me of equivocating on whatever society, but I'm not equivocating. I am saying that not every society is founded on Christian principles, and we appear to think theft is wrong much more broadly than in Christian societies. So I can simply say that descriptively, if I live in a society where theft is wrong, I'm not imposing my values. I'm imposing the values of the society I live in, and theft is wrong in almost all societies that we know of. Absolutely. The society has agreed that this is the standard. What you're doing is you're upholding the societal value for the betterment of the wider society. 
you're not imposing your morality on that individual. You're reminding them that society has agreed as a whole, the society that they're a member of, that this is not an action you should do. Uh, that's, that's absolutely right. And theft does work here. And as the harm to the individual rises, you know, we, we do more about, we, we step in more vigorously. So let me ask this question again from the religious perspective. In the New Testament, there's a story about a woman who only has two pence to her name, two pennies. You know, she, she, is, she is so broke that she has two pennies left. Let me ask you, Christian, even if she, even if she gave with widow's might, she gave all she had, was it ethical for the church to accept it? I say no. If you encounter a poor person and you are taking what may be the last possible meal they can ever have. Now, I actually think this story is overblown. I think it's apocryphal and I think it's silly because she got the two pence somehow. Maybe she has the capacity to earn two more. But if you think it's ethical for your church to take the last person's dollar, you are the thief. Yeah, I would agree with you because there is, I would go so far as to say there's a morality standard to support those people. And I'm quite exactly. glad that I live in a country where some of the taxes that I pay go to help those people. Yes, me too. And I will pay higher taxes to, to help more people. The U.S. is going through its uh, typical bout with the healthcare system, and we are considering national health care. I will pay higher taxes to help more people. I will pay higher taxes for early childhood intervention. I'll pay higher taxes to make sure that women don't have babies in dark alleys. I'll pay higher taxes to make sure that poor people get cancer treatment right alongside rich people. And if you live in a society, if you're the kind of person where you will take someone's last dollar to support your God, you're the reprehensible one. Not me when I step in to stop someone from stealing $5. No, and I would go so far as to say that if you're stepping in on a situation like that, you're not imposing your moral values uh, on the aggressor in that situation. You're protecting the downtrodden, which incidentally is a biblical standard, or at least a New Testament standard, is it not? Uh, yes. So you are stepping in to protect someone who does not want something bad to happen to them. You're stepping in to protect someone who something's happening to them that is objectively, measurably unhelpful to that individual. And you're stepping in to prevent that. You are not forcing any moral value onto anybody else. You are, you are reminding the aggressor that they are harming someone and you are reminding them that harm is objectively, measurably not good. And I wouldn't put that under the umbrella of imposing a moral value. I would say that's something quite different. And I would say that to classify that as imposing of a moral value means that you are a accepting subjective morality as a given, which isn't the point of this series of questions, and B, you're saying that everybody's subjective moral goods is the right thing to do in all circumstances, which it can't be. It, it, that can't follow, because if everybody's got their own subjective moral values, then you will find two people who want to do do something that in their view is the right thing to do that are in conflict with each other. That is going to happen at some point somewhere along the line. And it may mm. be that it, that clash is, you see, they think it's, all, it's good, take the top of 
take the five pounds from someone's back pocket because they can see the top of it picking out and the person will never notice until they get home later, in which case it's their tough. You think it's not good to do that. So you've got a clash here. So you've got a clash of values. Whichever one wins, the way this question is phrased, one of those people is, according to this question, imposing their moral value on someone else. That is what's going to happen in a subjective society. And so to say that what somebody thinks is morally good, they should be allowed to do it, is not a world I want to live in. And it's a world I would hope Christians would not want to live in either. Absolutely. I think we've nudged into part of question nine on this one, because again, you can see Matt is taking us on a journey on this. He knows the answers to some of these questions. So he's phrased the questions to lead us there. Question nine, if you ought, again in inverted commas, to impose your moral value on others, like stopping theft, I'm going to change a word there. What gives you the moral right to do that? Well, it's quite, I think we've pretty much answered this one already. Again, I don't necessarily call this a moral right, but maybe it is. Okay, let's say, let's say it is. It's a moral right for me to intervene if I see somebody being harmed or being, or, or being forced into a situation where they are going to lose, regardless of what that loss is. They're going to lose, they're going to face a deficit, whatever. I, I don't care what the objective is. I, can, I see a situation where somebody is losing out. And so it is morally right for me to intervene. I am not imposing my morals on the aggressor. I am protecting somebody who is being wronged. I agree. And the claim of objective moral value that the Christian might use to so, say, well, look, but God has told me that objectively it's right for me to step in. God has given you then, because Christianity depends on some notion of free will. So what you're saying is, God has given you the right to interfere with someone's free will in a situation where God himself wasn't willing to intervene. Yeah. So once again, I don't see your standard. It's fine for you to say that you have an objective one, but your God gave people free will. Are you really objectively right to interfere with their free will when your God didn't? interfere with it? I call bullshit on that. You used a bad word, mate. Yeah, we'll, sorry, leave can, we'll, leave that, we'll leave that in, listeners. We'll leave that in. You can react how you want to that. Um, I call back guano on that. Sorry. I call the stinky stuff, yes. <laughs> so so I'm guessing, where are we? Are we on nine or ten? That's nine, yeah. We're, no, that was, that was nine. So we're, we're running, running to the end. We're on the final furlong. Good. So, yeah. okay. so let's just unpack this a little bit more, because I've stated categorically that stepping in on that situation is not imposing a moral value on others. Do you agree with that statement? Is there a way that you would rephrase that statement or how would you unpack or challenge that statement, Andrew? Say it to me one more time. I do not see intervening on the situation where you witness someone stealing five pounds from the back of someone else's pocket. I do not see how intervening in that situation is imposing my moral value on someone else. I don't either. So in some sense, so you might try to stop someone from stealing five dollars from someone else. And, and you might you might be victorious in that, com- in that confrontation in the sense that you were actually able to, pre- to prevent the theft. It might also be that this person has a weapon that you didn't see, and it turns out badly for you, you know, along some continuum where, where you're unsuccessful. In either situation, I don't know that you've imposed a moral value because I don't think you've changed that person's mind. 
right? So there's a difference between taking an action to prevent a theft and imposing your moral value, which is a, a mental construct. Ethics are a, a thought game, right? And so if you stop that person from stealing $5, have you actually changed their moral viewpoint? I doubt it. I think they will probably go steal again. No, I don't know, because we, we're only talking theoretically, right? I think another question, though, is if you do stop them from stealing $5, and let's say you did impose your moral will on them versus, versus your, your, your physical confrontation, it seems to me to be reasonable to say that the outcome of changing the person's mind rather than stopping the theft by brute force, you engage with them intellectually and convince them that stealing is wrong. Either way, we can all agree that the outcome was a better outcome, though in, though in one sense, the you know, imposing your will was sort of hidden, right? Because you haven't actually changed their mind ethically if you, if you stop them from stealing. What you've done is stop them from stealing. Yeah. Okay, let's, I like your Though maybe that's a little, it might be too finely oh. diced. <laughs> yeah, I agree, but I'd like to tweak the, um, the stealing $5 scenario just slightly to bring in a, an extra entity. Mm. You're now a security guard working for a, a company, and so your job is to stop people entering the premises of that company because people entering the premises of that company without proper authority are going to want to steal something. Let's just assume the only reason would be to steal something. Mm. So now you're the security guard. Your job is to stop them, regardless of how you think about it. It is your job to stop them. Does that change your answer? Uh, okay, so I'm not sure. I think we're going to have to talk about this one together. I'm not sure if it changes my answer because in one sense, in the security guard, in the security guard uh, scenario, you have a descriptive framework for stopping this person. That is, you accepted a job, right? And as part of that job description, you are legally bound or at least contractually bound if you'll accept that as a subsystem, a subset of legally bound. So your, your employer has dictated an objective value onto you that people right. can enter the premises without proper authority. That's right. And if you're a security guard for a company, I think it's reasonable to go ahead and presume that the company's contract for sake of this example is closely aligned, is closely enough aligned with the descriptive system of laws for the country that obeying your contract is what you should do, right? Because your contract presumably is legal. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> right. But, but I think it's okay to assume that for the sake of this for the sake of this, uh, uh, of this analogy. So the security guard actually has a descriptive framework that provides for her action in this case. I think the same thing is true in the other case, but it might be that we could turn this to a normative discussion rather than a descriptive discussion. So without the descriptive framework, let's, if, we, if we suppose that we lived in a, in a society of anarchy, and we just happen to be two guys that have a, uh, you know, we, we have a big trading center and we ask a security guard to keep people from stealing from us. So we don't have the backup of a descriptive society. Would the security guard still be right in, well, no matter how you carve this, the security guard has a framework that is descriptive for acting to stop the theft. 
So I'm, I'm trying to work this backward to some normative system. And it seems to me that without Christianity, the normative system says that we just don't, we don't steal. We don't need Christianity for that. We see, we see this as a norm across the world without Christianity and among primates who certainly don't understand Christianity. So I think Matt, I, I think Matt Slick is misguided here. And I don't know where it's going, to be honest. Well, we could play with um, we could play with that security example a little bit longer. I, I I won't, but yeah, there are there are other ways we could play that. Like for example, the person breaking in is is doing it for the good of national security or or, or whatever. Mm. Um, there's been movies mm. made about that kind of plot line. I won't go there just now, but maybe that is somewhere we we could explore. We will send the link to this podcast to Matt Slick when we publish it, which will be uh, later in the week, a couple of days, when I've had a chance to edit it. Maybe it can be explored there, but we, we won't do that do that now. Boringly, we agree, unsurprisingly, we agree, but our answers have been been slightly different. And I've, been, I've liked hearing your perspective on things, Andrew. Right. Two more questions. Question 10. Do you believe that the subjective opinions of a society offer proper basis for morality? Now, again, I don't like the way the tail end of this question is going, because it's assuming that a society exists on subjective opinions, and I'm not sure that that is actually an accurate description. So I don't think that then follows to a, and again, I don't know what he means by proper basis. It's it's a, it's an ambiguous phrase, which I, I, I don't know what he's thinking when he's saying that. So whatever conclusion, whatever guess I might make about that, I'm probably going to miss what he's thinking when he's asked that question. Mm. Um, mm. But a society is not built on subjective opinions. Individuals have their subjective opinion, but society has laws that govern how society must, uh, must act. And so whether the individuals within society agree with or not with those laws, they have to abide by those laws because there is a process in place uh, of, of punishment and correction if you don't abide by those laws. So society doesn't exist by subjective uh, opinions. People come together and they create a, sub, uh, a set of laws that they agree should be applied to everybody objectively um, because mm. that is the best way for the society to run. So I don't think the question hits the target that is expected. Oh, I don't either. And I think there's a further problem. So if we ask the question from the Christian society perspective, let's say that some person in, in Christianity thinks that they know what objective truth is. Does that person have the right to say, I have the corner market on objective truth, therefore everyone in society should follow everything that I say, everything that I say they should follow. After all, we're talking about objective truth here. So why is it then, if we have objective truth, why is it that Matt Slick is publishing questions to atheists rather than making pronouncements about objective truth? Why doesn't Matt Slick simply write down the compendium of, of objective truth and submit it to the country for ratification? After all, he's got objective truth. Why is he asking the atheist where we get our subjective evaluations? And after you write it, Matt, if you're listening, and I hope you will come on because I'm not trying to be overly combative, I hope that you will defend how you know objective truth every time you encounter it versus the 2.4 billion other Christians who have a wide range of views that are different from yours. 
Just write down your objective truth. Let's get on with it. And let's see if we get universal agreement. I don't think I've got anything to add to that, Andrew. I hope that's good and not bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, as, as I say, said earlier, I, I struggle with the phrasing of, of this question. I hope we've not trapped, Matt, because we've dropped several places into this where we have said we'll send a link to Matt and where we have said we would like to have conversation sure. with him on this. Sure. And um, I hope if he ever listens to this, Matt, if you are listening to this, thank you. Indeed. I, I hope I hope if, if Matt listens, he doesn't feel like we're trying to berate and bash him into responding to this. No, no, I agree. And Right. If he never responds, that, that's his choice, uh, and he never responds, and we're, we, we remain having had this conversation to ourselves. Sure, that's yeah. absolutely fair enough. The, the only thing I'm challenging here, I'm, I'm not actually challenging Matt Slick as a, as a person. I'm challenging a document that appears to have gone up in his name into the public eye, where, where we are people together. I would, I would happily go to, the local, go to the local coffee shop and sit down and have a friendly conversation or buy dinner, or go for a run, or go fishing. Because I have no doubt that as individuals, we could spend time together and build a friendship, or you know, enjoy each other's company without, without these sorts of disagreements over some of these things which are much more abstract, because we're people and we get along. Uh, however, where these notions are forwarded by, by you know, when someone makes a claim to some of these things that I think are harmful, I think it's okay to address those in public, you know, and, and try to get behind them. So I agree with you, not trying to be overly confrontational or to back Matt into a corner where he feels like he has to respond. Okay, but yeah, I, but question 10, I would, um, so I agree with all you've said, just to bring us back on track. Mm. Yeah, question 10, I don't like the way it's phrased, the words it, it's uses, used, and it feels, like I've mentioned with some of the other questions, that there's roads as question answers we're being forced down against our will. Mm. Right. Mm. The, the, the wrap-up question. Uh, we, we could kill 20 minutes on this if we want to, Andrew. Right. Question 11. How do we know if a society is improving morally? This is a really open, open question. Mm. And, and, I, and I think it's uh, left intentionally there. You know, Back in my Christian days, we used to do Bible studies and there used to be a pamphlet that used to lead us and guide us through the Bible study. And there would always be a question like this down at the end, you know, question towards the end, in one way tying everything together, but in another way leaving it open for discussion for people to talk around. And, and this is that kind of question. You know, it's in, it envelops pretty much all the answers that we've given up up to this point, but leaves room for plenty of room for, for, for more, more expansion. It hasn't got any ambiguously defined words in here, so it allows us to define what we mean by a society improving however, however we want to do it. So um, before I give my answer to this, Andrew, what are your thoughts on this question? How would you answer it? Okay, I'd, I'd answer in two ways. First of all, there seems to be a, a sort of implicit implication that if we are talking about society getting better, we must be able to objectively measure that. Otherwise, we can't know that it's getting better. So let me tackle that one right off the bat. If you ask me, we're, we're, look, we're, we're walking through a, a warehouse, right? Uh, and it's a, it happens to be a, a lumber warehouse. We're walking, we're walking through this warehouse, and you have in your hands a leg from a stool. Now, you didn't bring your tape measure with you. 
you just got this leg off of this stool or chair. And you've got this because another one is broken and it has to be replaced, right? And so you say, I need to figure out what piece of lumber in here will be long enough for me to make another leg. Well, you don't actually have to know the exact measurement in terms of feet or inches or whatever, or centimeters or millimeters or whatever. All you have to have is this purely subjective measure that some pieces are too short and others are long enough. Now, I don't think that's where we have to stop. All we have to have to find out whether society is getting better is agreement on what better might be. So if we agree that starvation is against human thriving, <laughs> I can measure whether society is getting better by the number of people who are getting fed. And in fact, we do this every day. The U.S. Army is currently involved and has been for years in a project to bring fresh water across the continent of Africa. Now, that's a good goal. So I can measure better in many subjective ways, but I can measure it objectively without some notion of God saying, hey, everybody should have fresh water. And by the way, I'd like to see that verse if anybody's got it. <laughs> but I think we all agree that fresh water is in everybody's best interest. And I don't actually have a verse that I've ever seen in the Bible that says, hey, God wants everybody to have fresh water. So I think it's completely fair to say that we can measure better in ways that are hard to quantify. Now, Matt is going to say potentially that hard to quantify means subjective. No, I don't. But I do think that subjective measures are acceptable, along with objective ones that are, that are counting measures, that are metrics we agree are good for human thriving, and we don't need a God. That's my answer. Good answer. I'm not sure how I expand on that. Actually, yeah, yeah, I knew. So I would go, I'm falling into my own trap of praising this question as an open answer question and struggling to know where to go. As I said before, the society itself doesn't operate on, on subjective uh, morality because society agrees the, the laws that it's going to do. Yeah, okay, I will go quite, quite short and sweet on this one, actually. How do you know if a society is uh, improving morally? I would probably say more people want to live in that society. You know, well, that's the, a good measure, the measurable happiness of, of that society goes up. Mm. There's, mm. you know, people want to live there. And I think that would be what makes it improve more. And obviously, there'll be lots of things that will, will come into play in terms of making people want want to live in a particular society. To bring Can this, I ask? This, sorry. Oh, yeah, you, I just wanted ahead. to ask. So I, I like what you've just said there. And so I want to live in a society that is less Christian. So I'm, I'm just sort of, again, trying to turn this question on its head a little bit. I want to live in a society that is less Christian because I actually think that there are Christian values that I don't hold to that I think are harmful. So I think what I would have to ask is I want to live in a less Christian society. Prove to me that a Christian society is objectively better than the one that I would prefer to live in without Christians. That's a challenge. Okay, you, you've, you've properly thrown down the gauntlet on, on that one. That was good. I wasn't going to go that far, but you, you've, you, you've gone there, so that's fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll endorse that, that challenge and I'll make myself open to be challenged with the answer to that as well. Uh, that, that's a good response, Andrew. Well, thank you. Right, where was I going for? So, yeah, so I was saying that, yeah, it's not just morality that, yes, I was bringing my answer to the current. In the UK, currently, moment, we're having yawn inducing, 
frustration-inducing, rage-inducing discussions about Brexit and whether it should happen or not. I am seeing amongst my social circle, both online and offline, and my social circle is mostly people who want to remain in the UK. There are a few who are okay with exiting, but most are of the opinion that we should stay within the, the EU. And they are express, expressing distaste with the way this country is going and expressing a desire to no longer want to live in this country. They would like to move elsewhere, but they're not really sure how practically that could work for them. But they are expressing that desire. They are no longer wanting to live in this society. And they are expressing that uh, vocally and online. So in answer to my question, that is an indication that that society is no longer attractive to some of the people within it. And there could be many factors why a society is not attractive to the people within it. But morality or society morality, the laws of, of, of the land, will form part of that. So that's just bolstering my answer earlier. You know, if the site is improving morally, you'll find that people are attracted to that society. And I, I think, that's, yeah, I stand by that answer. Um, I know you said it was a good answer. I think it's a good answer. I'm awesome. I, look, I do think it's a good answer. <laughs> uh, it is, to be, honest, uh, to be honest with our listeners, it's one that I don't think I'd have thought of. And, and it's one that, that feels right. In some, in some sense, it goes hand in hand, both of our answers, right? Because I don't want to live in a society dominated by Christians. And you've said, look, a society that is better is one that more people want to live in. So I don't care whether you think you have an objective measure. I care whether your objective measure stands up to that being a place people want to live. And if it's not, then I think you've failed the, the test of demonstrating that your society is objectively better. So all I'm saying, Matthew, is I, I, think, I think you hit on a, on a critical element of what better can be. Better is where we want to live. And that's good enough. Yeah, it's, it's good, definitely. So one last one, just to throw in there. Mm. Um, so um, as you said about, you said about a society which is less Christian. Well, let's throw it the other way around. What if there was a society where it was compulsory to be Christian and you were thrown out if you couldn't abide by it? those people who adhere to Christianity would be happy. Those people who are Christians would be happy with that society. So would that be a more moral society? That's a good question. Frankly, I, I, will, I will be honest and say that in the main, I find Christian Western societies to be, to be reasonably, uh, reasonably ethical. I, I find them to be societies that, that morally I am willing to live in, whereas some societies that are not Christian or one are, are, uh, Islam, for instance, I am not, not picking on Muslims here, but there are many Muslim countries that I would prefer not to live in because I wouldn't raise my daughter in a, in a, in a Muslim society of the form that, that some are, right? However, that said, just because I would prefer to live in, in Western countries where we have Christianity, that doesn't mean I think that is the best we can do. And so there's a question about where would you prefer to live? 
well, I, I think our Christian, I think Christian societies have done well for us in general, but I don't think it's the best we can do. And so I don't think wanting to live in a Christian society demonstrates the superiority of Christianity. It just says that this is where we are. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's good. I think um, my answer would be that the more inclusive a society is, and if it can be inclusive and people, people want people of all stripes, shapes, colors, creeds, whatever, are motivated to want to be in that society, then the better and more moral that society will be. And I think if the if that society is exclusive on on any factor, so my example was enforcement of Christianity. That society is excluding people of a certain creed, and um, mm -hmm. so people who are not of that creed will not be motivated to want to live in that society. Um, and there is a there is therefore de facto a form of oppression, and therefore. That is not going to be. That's going to be a less moral society. But it doesn't matter whether it's on creed or color or gender or height or, or hair color or or whatever. The, the the measure doesn't matter if there are people that are being positively excluded from that society. It becomes a a lesser society, and I would go as far as say even less moral. So we will we will join at the top of that hill, and Excellent. yep, and. This has been a challenging episode, I think. There have been a there have been a lot of very affirmative statements made here. If you're still with us, I hope that you enjoyed it, even if it was challenging, because I'll say that it was challenging for me. And I hope that if it was challenging for you and you disagree, you will write and tell us why. Because these are conversations that matter. And we are willing to openly engage, even if occasionally with a little fire. <laughs> We're willing to openly engage. Yes, I would uh, echo that. Um, I went through quite a few web pages of questions before I finalized on this one. And we both said, yes, these, this is the list of questions that we want to address. And I know we've been critical about some of the phraseology and the wording on, on some of the questions, but we both say this has actually been in general, a good set of questions, a, a challenging set of questions. In fact, it, it made us think, it made us get down to what we both approve of, what we both like, what we both consider moral. And other questions that we've seen, we've looked at them, we've gone, I really have no stomach to go through those. I don't like those questions, they, they assume to. So these have been a much more thoughtful set of questions that we've seen. And yes, I know I've said about it leading us down a particular path. I'm sure that if I was to do a set of questions the other way back to uh, theologians and apologists, I might have the same sort of questions. So that doesn't mean the set of, so me giving that feedback about those questions or necessarily criticizing those questions for those things doesn't mean that as a general rule, they're a bad set of questions. They're not. Matters genuinely thought about these questions and generally thought about the answers to some questions and, and asked follow on questions. And I like that. And, uh, and I appreciate that. And I hope that Matt will listen to this. And, and I hope that he'll think that uh, you and I have actually taken these questions uh, seriously. And if any listener wants to give a different answer to any of these questions or wants to ask more follow up questions uh, to these questions or challenge us uh, on any of the questions or the assumptions that we've made in answering these questions, I would absolutely love to to have that feedback, whether you agree with me or whether you don't agree with me, it's the dialogue that's important. Absolutely. And they can get in touch with us over at reasonpress.net. 
and we look forward to hearing from you listeners. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, conversation, Andrew. You go away and enjoy your evening. I'm off to go and enjoy uh, my evening. I think we're going to watch James Bond with the daughter, so that's going to be awesome for me. Oh, that um, is awesome. And, yeah, it, it is. It'll be her first James Bond film, so it'll be brilliant. And so that will be that's my evening absolutely made. Have a wonderful uh, February, listeners, and we'll be back on again soon. I hope. Cheers and goodbye. Thanks. Thank you.